Uh, my name is Jamie Borchick. I'm a teaching pastor here at Park. If you've got a Bible, you can find 1 Corinthians. And if you don't have a Bible, there's a table in the back right out those doors in the little hallway there where there's a bunch of Bibles, and that is our gift to you today. So if you don't have a Bible, please take one with you as you leave today. I want you to have that. Now, uh, check out these images on the screen behind me here. This morning, we're beginning a new sermon series in the book of 1 Corinthians, and this is going to take us all the way up until next summer, so we're going to be here for a while. And these two images represent the central issue this series is going to address. On the left, what's this building? What do you call it? Okay, good. Um, (laughs) This image is up here to represent the culture of our city, the culture of our city. This image represents the culture, the worldview, the values, the norms, the way of life, the way of being of the culture of our city and of the society around us. So this is the culture. And then on the right, you see a cross. And this cross, which was originally designed as a, uh, by, by the mightiest empire in world history as a simple yet brutally effective me- uh, method of capital punishment, this cross it represents the person and work, the life, death, and resurrection, The power and the promises of Jesus Christ. So the culture and the cross. The culture and the cross. And the central issue we're going to explore over the coming months is this. Which of these is most profoundly shaping your life? Which of these is most profoundly shaping your life? You are like a lump of dough. And the culture and the cross are like two competing cookie cutters that are trying to stamp themselves onto you. And which is most profoundly shaping your life? That's what the book of 1 Corinthians is all about. So we are going to read our text today, and then we're going to talk about it. This is 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 1 through 17. Read it with me. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus, and our brother Sosthenes, who, was a, who is with Paul as he's writing this letter. To the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. That in every way you are enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any spiritual gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you. My brothers, what I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, 
so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. And as a little parenthetical aside, as Paul is writing this letter, he kind of remembers something that he left out originally. And he, said, and he writes parenthetically, I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. And get this. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. And not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Father, as we open this word today, we ask simply that you would speak to us. Teach us now. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Now, a little backstory on this book and where it came from. This book is really a letter. It's a letter that was written by the Apostle Paul sometime in the spring of 54 or 55 AD. And Paul, at the time of writing, was in the city of Ephesus on his third missionary journey. And if you know Paul's story, you know that he had formerly been a devoted Jew who opposed Jesus and the Jesus movement and tried to destroy Christianity. He traveled around uh, persecuting and arresting Christians, even putting some of them to death. But then Paul met Jesus. And when he met Jesus, everything in his life changed. He went from being a persecutor of the church to a preacher of the gospel. And Paul began to travel all over the Mediterranean world, telling people everywhere all about Jesus. Paul became an urban church planter, so he'd go from city to city, starting churches in city centers. And you can read about his time planting the church in the city of Corinth in Acts chapter 18. On the second of Paul's three missionary journeys, which you can see up here on the screen now, this is Paul's second missionary journey where he traveled around the Mediterranean world. But uh, on that journey, um, sometime around 50 AD, so about five years, four or five years before he wrote this letter, Paul showed up in the city of Corinth. And Corinth is right up here, uh, if you see Achaia on the map, A-C-H-A-I-A over on the left side of of the map here, Corinth is just right above there. And Paul shows up in this city, and he spends about 18 months there. And during that time, he dedicated himself to preaching the gospel message and establishing the church in the city. And his efforts were really fruitful. Some really good things happened. When Paul left a year and a half later, He left behind a growing young church community made up mostly of people who had turned away from pagan idols and other religions and had turned to believe in the God of the Bible and to follow Jesus. So there were really good things happening in this church. But this church was also really young in the faith. And this church was still in the city of Corinth. And the city of Corinth had a profound way of shaping its people. One New Testament scholar writes this about the Corinthians. He says, the ideal of the Corinthian was the reckless development of the individual, the merchant who made his gain by all and every means, the man of pleasure surrendering himself to every lust, the athlete steeled to every bodily exercise and proud in his physical strength. These are the true Corinthian types In a word, the man who recognized no superior and no law but his own desires. Let me translate this for us. You know what he's saying here? You do you. You do you. That was the ethic of the culture in Corinth in the first century. Just as that you do you ethic is the culture of Chicago in the 21st century. And for Christians living in Corinth and being shaped by their city, 
that you-do-you ethic resulted in a host of problems. See, the church in Corinth was a mess, kind of like the mess outside today. Like the church was a mess. This is some of the stuff Paul tells us about in this letter. Let me give you a little run-through. So in this church in Corinth, there was a dude who was sleeping with his own stepmom, and the church was pretty cool with it. They had no issue with it. There were other Christians who regularly frequented the temples of prostitutes and would do stuff with prostitutes, and that was cool. There were also married couples who refused to come together and have sex with each other because it kind of in a twisted response to the other perversion going on. And so sex was a huge issue in this church. There were also Christians who were suing one another for profit. And those in the church who were rich and who had a lot of means, they would host invitation-only potlucks after the service, and they'd leave out and humiliate the less fortunate in their community. Like, if you couldn't bring stuff to the meal, you can't come. So greed and pride and wealth were issues in this church. In this church, some folks showed up on Sunday mornings just to show off their spiritual gifts. Church became a performance. Hey, I'm here and I'm going to show you how great I am. Look at me. So pride was a major issue. Other folks showed up on Sunday mornings just to get drunk off the communion wine. So drunkenness was an issue. And that's one of the reasons we use grape juice, (laughs) y'all. Just saying. Now many members of this church they considered their relationship with God to be an open relationship. So they would hang out with God on Sundays, but then they'd go hang out with other gods throughout the week. So idolatry was an issue. And then there were some people who straight up denied the central truth of the Christian faith, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So false doctrine was an issue in this church. So do you see how the you-do-you ethic was playing out in this church and shaping the lives of the people in this church? Now look at verse 10. In verse 10, we see one of the central issues in this church. Here in verse 10, Paul appeals to the Corinthians that there be no divisions among you. And the reason Paul makes that appeal is because of verse 11. See, Paul had a friend named Chloe. And Chloe sent him a report of some quarreling that was happening in the church. And in the city of Corinth, it was common practice for people to find leaders of high rank and then to latch themselves onto those leaders the way an American might latch themselves onto their favorite football team, Andrew. So you you latch onto someone and you find status by being associated with a winning team. So this person's successful, this person's important, so I'm going to latch onto this person. I'm I'm on this person's team and I'm going to root for this person. I'm going to cheer for this person. And as I'm doing so, I'm also going to tear down other teams. I'm going to rip other teams and say those teams are trash in order to build my team up. Now because Corinth was a major city, some of the major players in the early church spent time in the city. So Paul, Apollos, Cephas, who's Peter, that's Peter, All these guys, they visited Corinth and they invested in this church. And each of these guys had different personalities and strengths, different emphases in their respective ministries. So Paul may have been more academic and Peter may have been more practical. Apollos may have been a speaker while Peter got out on the streets and was with the people more often. And what the Corinthians did is they latched on to these differences. 
And rather than all playing for the same team and, and working together toward the same end, what they did is they started siloing. And they started saying, hey, I'm on team Paul. Started wearing Paul jerseys and rooting for, for Paul. And then other guys started throwing on Apollos jerseys. And other people said, hey, I'm team Cephas. And, and they started picking sides and choosing teams. And pretty soon they found themselves on opposite sides of the stadium yelling at each other. And then after the game, they'd end up in the parking lot and they're throwing blows at each other. There's quarreling and fighting happening in this church. There's division. And the word quarrel in verse 11, it refers to a hot dispute. So it's the kind of conflict where the emotional temperatures rise and people start getting burned. Now, have any of you, in your experiences with the church, have any of you ever experienced quarreling like that? Have you ever seen that happen in the church? Take a look at this. This is a quote that I think really captures the emotional temperature of the church. We spend our strength in arguing, bickering, contending, quarreling, and opposing one another rather than magnifying, blessing, and praising the name of God. We are a divided people. Peace and unity have flown from us, and a spirit of contention and division has come upon us. The church is divided. The state is divided. The city is divided. The country is divided. Towns are divided. Families are divided. Godly people are divided. Ministers almost everywhere are divided. Yes, and what heart is there at this time that is not divided within itself? Does that resonate? Now this quote, it looks like it might have come right out of the pages of the most recent edition of Newsweek or Christianity Today. It pretty neatly captures the temperature of the last several years in the American church. But y'all, this quote, it isn't about America at all. It actually comes from a guy named Jeremiah Burroughs, who was a Puritan preacher in London way back in 1646. And do you know what happened just two years later? Two years after Burroughs wrote this, in 1648, there was a quarrel between Puritan Protestants and Church of England Protestants. So we're not talking Catholics and Protestants or Christians and Muslims. We're not talking two different, we're talking two different sets of Protestants. There was a quarrel between these two groups of Protestants that led to the Puritan Protestants beheading the King of England, who just so happened to be Charles I, whose namesake just ascended the throne of England this week. Here's the point. Division is not a new problem in the church. Neither is sexual immorality, or idolatry, or drunkenness, or greed, or any of those other issues that we see in Corinth. All this stuff, if you, if you study church history, if you read through church history, all this stuff has been around for a long time. These are not new problems. And these were all a part of the mess in Corinth, and these are all a part of the mess in the church today. Think about headlines related to the church just in recent years. Division over Donald Trump. Division over COVID. Division over Black Lives Matter and critical race theory and immigration. Big name pastor caught in adultery. Big name pastor stealing money from the ministry. Big name pastor pridefully abusing his congregation and staff. 
In fact, of all the big name pastors, when I first became a Christian, I would have said, hey, I follow so-and-so or I follow so-and-so. Of all those big name people, nearly all of them, I mean, seriously, nearly all of those people have now fallen either to greed or pride or sexual immorality. And I know for some of you, you've got stories where it wasn't a big name pastor who fell, but it was your pastor. Some of you, it wasn't just the church, it was your church. It was your family or your small group, your friend group that split over moral or political or cultural issues. It wasn't just someone out there who fell and made your sin. It was someone you know. It was your spouse or your parents or your friend or even you yourself. Like for some of us, this mess, it hits really close to home. John Marriott is a university who, uh, who studies deconversion. So people leaving the faith. He's the foremost researcher of deconversion in the world. And right now, the statistics on deconversion are striking. For every one person who converts to Christianity, four people deconvert. Now, you have to be a little careful about how you define Christianity here and what they're converting or deconverting to or from. But, but any honest observer, any re- anyone who's looking at this, they see that there's a lot of people who are leaving the church. And in his research, John Marriott looks at the reasons why people are leaving the church. And you just want to take a guess at the top reason, or the category, the top category reason why people leave the church? It's because of the church. It's because of what they experience in the church. They see how we behave on the internet, how we decimate each other on social media. They see all the mess, the division, the immorality, the greed. They see that we look no different from the culture, or that in many cases we look worse than the culture. And they decide, I don't need that. Like if the church is the same as the rest of the church, what's the point? And for some of you, maybe that's you today. Maybe you're sitting here today and you've been burned by the church, or you've uh, been burnt out on the church. Maybe you have for a season walked away, or maybe you're sitting here today thinking about walking away from the mess altogether. Maybe that's you. And even if it's not you, it's certainly the world around us. The world is watching, and our kids are watching. Young Christians are watching. They're paying attention to this stuff. They see it. The mess in the church is a major hindrance to the mission of the church. The mess is a major hindrance to the mission of the church. And that's where Paul's letter to the Corinthians becomes so valuable to us. See, Paul wrote this letter to deal with the mess. Paul wanted the watching world out there to see something better. And he wanted his readers and and people like us, he wanted us to experience something better. And this letter is his remedy for the mess. Now today in our world, there are lots of experts who offer lots of solutions to the mess in the church. We need better pastoral training. We need better discipleship. We need better small group curriculum. We need better music, better leaders, better theology, better Christian schools, better websites, better books, better ministry to the poor. There are lots of strategies out there. 
And nothing is wrong with strategy. Many of those ideas are spot on and necessary. We do need those things. But y'all, none of those things is a spiritual tide pen that's going to come in and magically erase all the mess. And none of those things is where Paul stakes his hope in this letter. See, Paul's remedy for the mess in the church is far simpler and yet far more profound than any of those solutions. Now, to see this whole thing, we're going to need the whole letter and we're going to need the rest of our study here. But the passage today gives us a really clear preview of where Paul is going. Look at verse 2. Despite the mess, in verse 2, what does Paul call these Christians? Saints. He says, all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ are saints. I don't know about you, but growing up, when I thought about a saint, I I thought about like an extra super holy person. Like somebody who was just next level spiritual, like doing miracles, walking on water, never doing anything wrong. Like that's what I picture as a saint. But what Paul does here is he calls all Christians saints. He says to be a saint is just to belong to God. The word saint comes from the word holy, and the word holy just means to be set apart for a special purpose. So it's like your grandma's fine china. Like you don't eat mac and cheese and chicken nuggets off that stuff. You save it for special dinners. It's like Christmas and Easter, right? It's set apart. And to be a Christian is to be a saint. It's to be on God's team. It's to belong to him. And so if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you are a saint. It's who you are. It's your identity. And then look at verses 4 and 5. Can you all hear me? There we go. Coming in and out. Sorry about that. Look at verses 4 and 5. Paul thanks God for them because of the grace he has given them. And what is the grace God has given them? It's that in every way, you are enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge. Verse 7, so that you are not lacking in any spiritual gift. Every, all, any. Do you know what Paul's saying there? He's saying that, hey, you already have everything you need to do and be all that God has called you to do and be. God has already given you everything you need. You have it all. Then look at verse 10. What does Paul call these Corinthian Christians there in the midst of all their mess and all their division and fighting? He calls them brothers. And the Greek there, it's an inclusive term for siblings. So it's brothers and sisters. This is family language. And what's crazy is that in this letter to this church where division is the major problem, Paul uses that family language more frequently than he does in any of his other letters. A full 39 times in 1 Corinthians, Paul calls these folks brothers and sisters. 39 times in 16 chapters. And that's more than twice as frequently as in any of his other letters, even to the really good churches. So what is Paul doing here? What is his strategy in this letter? Well, it's really simple. What he's doing is he's just reminding these believers that they belong to God and to one another and that they already have everything they need. He's reminding them of who they already are. And he's calling them up into it. He's saying, be who you already are. Live it out. Now, a few generations ago here in America, Martin Luther King Jr. was looking at the American church, at an American church that was a mess. The white church in America looked just like the rest of the culture. It was white churchgoers who most vigorously opposed 
was the civil rights movement. It was white clergy who most vocally opposed the nonviolent resistance movement. It was white Christians like me in general who just kind of stood on the sidelines and didn't do anything during the civil rights movement. And in the face of that mess, Dr. King could have urged his followers to therefore reject Christianity. He could have said, hey, Christians are the source of the problem, therefore deconvert, leave the church. Christianity is a mess, therefore get rid of it. We need to scrap this thing, find something different. That's the approach some other leaders did take. And that could have been Dr. King's message. If anyone had grounds to make that move, it was Dr. King. The stuff that he endured at the hands of white Christians, he, he had grounds to do it. He could have said that. But y'all, that wasn't his move. Rather than urging people to deconvert and leave the faith, Instead, what he did is he told them to put it on more fully. He told those white Christians to remember what's already true and to actually live like it's true. He told them to be more Christian, not less Christian. See, his remedy for racism and division was more Jesus, not less. And that's exactly what Paul is saying in this letter. He's urging his readers to put on the faith more fully, to become more fully who they already are in Christ. To be shaped not by the culture, but to be shaped by the cross. And there is a golden thread that runs throughout this text and ties it all together. Look at this. Do you see these underlines up here? See all these underlines? See this repetition throughout this passage? What's being repeated up here? That's Christ. It's Christ. There are 10 references to Christ in the first 10 verses of this letter. In fact, in no other New Testament letter does the name of Christ show up so often in so few verses anywhere in the New Testament. Highest repetition right here. And then look at verse 17. Paul writes in verse 17, Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. And not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Paul's purpose was not to baptize lots of people into Team Paul. Paul was not trying to build a fan base for himself that would go out and fight for him. No, Paul came to preach the gospel, the good news of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. And I want to zoom in on the last phrase there in that line. It says, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Now, how many of you have a phone in your pocket right now? Let, let me see them. Hold, hold them up. Let's just see those things. Okay. Not even in your pockets. You got them in your laps. This is great. Yeah, you can go like this a little bit. Can I get, can I get a little? All right. Now, now, what happens to that phone throughout the day for you? As you're going through the day, up in the corner of your screen, you got a little icon. And what does that icon show you? Is your battery life. Good. And what happens to the battery throughout the day? Thank you, TJ. That's exactly right. Yeah, as the day goes on, that battery gets emptied of its power. It runs out of life. Eventually, if you don't do something about it, it gets to the point where it no longer has the juice it needs to do what it needs to do. It doesn't have the power to do what it's supposed to do. It gets emptied of its power. Now, how many of you remember these? 
old school landline phones. I mean, some of you, some of y'all, like, you're too young. These didn't exist. This, this is like, we're taking ancient history here, okay? Ancient history, all right? But back in the day, back in the day, phones used to come on a leash, right? They were tethered to a wall. And that leash was really inconvenient in a lot of ways. Like, you couldn't just take it with you everywhere. So none of us would have had phones in here, and we probably would have been paying more attention. But uh, there was one distinctive advantage to a One distinctive advantage. A landline phone would never run out of power. It would never run out of power. Even on a day like today, if there's storms and there's there's weather, it would never run out of power. And the reason for that is because built into the telephone line, there was a dedicated pair of copper wires that brought power straight from the source to the phone. It was built into the phone, was a power source. And that dedicated supply line of power meant that even if the power went out in the rest of your house or in your neighborhood or in your city, the phone line would still work. That landline phone always had power. It was never emptied of its power. Now, where is the power for the Christian life? Where do you get the power you need to put the faith on more fully and live the Christian life more fully? Where do you get that from? Is it found in having a big-name pastor like Jason who preaches the most eloquent sermons? Is that where you get it? Is it found in having the best Sunday morning worship service with the most incredible band? Is it found in being a church that most... Y'all, the power's going out on this thing. Come on. Is it found in being in the, ch- in the church that baptizes the most people? You got the highest number of stats? Is power found in sending your kids to the right school, to the right Christian school? Is power found in having the most pure, true theology? Is power found in controlling the White House or Congress or the Supreme Court? Is that where we get power from? Where is the power for the Christian life? Power for the Christian life is found in one place and one place alone. It is found in the cross of Christ. It is found in the cross where Jesus Christ subjected himself to all the powers of the world. The cross where Jesus Christ died naked and abandoned. The cross where Jesus Christ laid down his life for sinners like you and me. That is where you find the power. See, the most powerful move that was in the history of the world, it was the move that Jesus made when he went to the cross. Though it looked like weakness, it was the supreme example of strength. Jesus willingly went to the cross to deal with all the mess of the world. And when he was nailed to the cross, all the mess was nailed to the cross with him. And when he died on the cross, all your mess and all my mess died on the cross with him. And when he then rose from the grave, he rose with power over the mess because he defeated the mess. And now he offers that power to you, his saints, his people, his team. And if we are to have his power and live up to his calling on our lives to be saints, then the only way we get it is not by taking our individual smartphones with us wherever we go and doing you. No, it's by staying tethered to the leash, by staying vitally connected to the landline, the lifeline that is Jesus Christ. Paul's solution to the mess in Corinth is what the kids these days might call a Jesus juke. What's the solution to the mess? Jesus. It's the right Sunday school answer. But y'all, it is the right answer. 
The only way you and I can ever be what God called us to be, the only way the mess can get cleaned up, it's through a vital connection to Jesus Christ. We need more of Jesus, not less. We need him to shape us more than the, more than the culture does. That's the solution. Now, someone here familiar with kintsugi? Kintsugi is the Japanese art of golden repair. In Japan, back in the 15th century, artisans began taking broken pottery and repairing it with a lacquer mixed with gold or other precious metals. So a valuable piece of pottery might be sitting on a table and uh, some of you got kids, like your kid runs through, knocks it over, the pottery falls on the floor and shatters into a bunch of pieces. Now, one option in that situation would be you could just take it and throw it in the trash. This valuable piece of pottery, completely destroyed, ruined, worthless, throw it away, get rid of it. But in Kintsugi, rather than tossing it in the trash, what happens is an artisan takes those broken pieces and he mends them or she mends them using something that's even more valuable. And take a look at the result. This is a piece of Kintsugi pottery. And it's beautiful, isn't it? Like it's gorgeous. It's better than it would have been before. Look, the church... It's often a mess. It's often broken, shattered, even ugly. And sometimes our lives are that way too. And when we look at the mess, it can be tempting to just throw it all in the trash. It would be easier to just be done with it, to walk away, to quit on this thing. But y'all, God is the master artisan. And he has a way of taking broken things and making them beautiful again. And Christ is the golden thread. And when we connect to Christ... God uses that golden thread to mend us and restore us and unite us and make us beautiful together. And that's our hope for you and for us as a people as we work through this letter to the Corinthians. May God use this to repair and restore and shape all of us. Now as we finish today, there's one last thing I want you to know about this letter. That we call this letter 1 Corinthians. It's actually the second of at least four letters that Paul sent to the church to deal with the mess. One of the other three letters is included in your Bible today is 2 Corinthians. That's actually the fourth letter that Paul sent. The other two, the first and the third, they've been lost to history, but we know about them because Paul references them in the letters that we do have. We also know from the book of Acts and from these letters that Paul visited Corinth at least two other times after this letter was sent. So in total, we know of four letters and three visits to this church. That's what it took for Paul to sort out this mess and for God to apply the golden thread and do his repair work. And you know what that means for us? It means that wherever you're at today, wherever we're at today, it means that you're right on schedule. It means that sometimes it takes a long time and a lot of effort to sort out all the mess. And what I want you to know at the outset here as we begin this series as a church is that we as a church are committed to doing that work with you. Like Paul, we're not going to quit on you. We're going to keep showing up. We're going to keep engaging. We're going to keep pointing you to Christ. We're going to keep applying that golden thread. And my invitation to you would be to commit to doing that work as well. Over these coming months, keep showing up. 
Keep engaging. Keep bringing your broken pieces. And together, let's see what God shapes out of our broken mass and makes beautiful. Let's pray. Father, I am so grateful today for Jesus Christ, for the cross, for his life, death, and resurrection. I am grateful for a God who doesn't give up on us, who loves us, and who wants to shape us into something beautiful. And I pray for us as a people that today and in the coming weeks and months that you would use this golden thread to shape us, to make us more like you, to make us into something beautiful. For those who are, who are just reeling, who are hurting from division and from all the issues, the mess, who are feeling it really personally, today, would you just apply some salve to those wounds? Would you meet them and help them? Would you point them to Christ? Would you allow them to experience your healing power? Pray for those of us who got some rough edges from the, from the brokenness, who, who are a little sharp and who, who've been hurting others, that, that it would stop today, that this would be the beginning of a healing process. And Lord, I pray for all of us as we live in a city that really wants to shape us and make us more, where the culture is just so, uh, so aggressive and, and uh, has such, a, such power over us so often in ways we don't even see. I pray, God, that you would more and more point us to Jesus, point us to the cross and shape us by your power. God, make us a people who, who, who live up to the calling to be saints. Make us saints. Make us holy in actuality, not just in name, but in actuality. And so we just praise you today. We give you thanks. We lift this up to you in Jesus' name. Amen.